And we're going to open our Bibles in here to Matthew chapter 14 this morning. Matthew 14. And if you are using a house Bible, it's page 820. Matthew 14. We'll read the text in a moment. Something I find absolutely amazing is this, that when God came into this world, He got into trouble with religion. (laughs) Of all things, it was the religious leaders of His day who had a problem with God. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. You know, human beings have always been religious. Human beings are inherently religious. You realize that? People are. We know in our souls that there is a transcendent reality. We are inherently spiritual. We are made to worship. But in the garden, when mankind rejected the Word of God and decided that he would determine for himself what was right and wrong, that religious instinct became perverted. It became twisted. And it has been ever since. People today persist in this sense that, uh, that, uh, that there is a God. And, and religion permeates the world. Do you know that 85% of all of the people on the planet are adherents to some official religion? 85%. We're not just sort of religious. Human beings are religious But the key question is whether our religion is true or whether our worship is vain, empty, and worthless. And this is the issue that Jesus deals with here in this chapter. He's going to contrast empty worship with true worship and instruct these religious people about what it means to truly worship God. The end of chapter 14, what we find is that uh, there's a record here about Jesus doing many miracles and healing in particular, and of course He's teaching in the midst of all of this. And I believe last time we left off in verse 33, so let's just pick up verse 34 and see what's happening here in the context of chapter 14, verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, so that Jesus and His disciples have been in the the ship, right? And Jesus, not so much in the ship. He was mostly on the water, walking on the water. We saw this last week. But He brings His disciples over to the other side of the sea, um, the Lake of, of Galilee, and when the men of that place recognized Him, they sent around to all that region and brought to Him all who were sick 
and implored him that he might only touch, they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So Jesus again blesses their faith. He gives um, a miraculous healing to so many people. What would it have been like to just be in his presence back then and to see the miracles? And I tell you, friends, you're going to see greater things than that when he comes again. And, uh, and the Lord is, is, is visibly and fully manifest in our sight. But, but He came and, and, and it's like the new age, the glory of eternity, all of the health and the healing and the elimination of the curse that will be ours sort of broke into this little world when Christ came uh, that first time so long ago. And He did these great works and somebody who did things like that was bound to draw the attention of the religious leaders of the day. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And so we read this in verse 15, and chapter 15, verse 1. And what I'm going to do now is I'd like to read the first 20 verses of chapter 15, but for this morning, we're just going to focus on the first half of it. It all goes together. But we're going to take the first nine verses for our text. But let's read all 20. So Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. And then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before, when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as, as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Verse 12, then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to Jesus, Explain this parable to us. And he said, Are you still also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. 
So that's the text, and it's not surprising that Jesus is questioned by these religious people. What is amazing is that these people are not just merely religious, like everybody in the world is religious. These people were people to whom the one true God had made himself known most fully. These are the people about whom Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has the statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? These were a blessed people to have the presence of God and the Word of God. Isaiah, Psalm chapter 147 says, God declares His Word to Jacob and His statutes to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know Him. Romans chapter 3, Paul said, What advantage has the Jew? <laughs> Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, God's revelation. He goes on in chapter 9 to say, To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, as according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever and ever. These are the people who were coming to Jesus to question Him about His actions. These were the people who were supposed to be God's people. These religious people, of all people, should have seen the light when the light came and dwelt in their midst. But they had a fundamental problem. And that was that their once true religion had become perverted and their worship had become vain and empty. As Isaiah put it so long ago in his day, and now Jesus says these people are the same. They have taken the great knowledge that they have of the Lord in all His ways, the Word that they possess, in their midst, the scrolls that they take care of, the very word, the very inspired word of the holy God of the universe, they had taken that and they had twisted it, and they had perverted it because their hearts were hardened. Their religion now was an empty shell and nothing more. And the lesson for us this morning is simply that we also should be wary lest our religion become so twisted and perverted as to become vain, empty worship. Worthless rituals and traditions only. And if you don't think that could happen here, look around at a great segment of the quote-unquote Christian community. And you'll see that a 
vast portion of it seems to be filled with emptiness, ritual, traditions which undermine the very Word of God. It's filled with unbelief in the name of religion. So it's a good thing for us to hear these warnings and these admonitions that the Lord gave to the religious people, the true, what should have been the true people of God in His day. That's the lesson for us, okay? Now, the text is very simple. There's a question that the Jews ask Him, and there's an answer that Jesus gives. And so, the question, first of all, in verse 2, if you want to take a look more closely at it, these Pharisees and scribes come to Him with a question. And notice it says in verse 2 that this is a delegation of Jewish leadership from Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus is up in Galilee on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is one of His first recorded confrontations with the biggies down in Jerusalem. This is a, a portent of what will come um, as He comes into a clash with the great Jewish leadership in the capital city and Jesus and Judaism as it is in that time find themselves in different places. This is the beginning of that. The question is put to Jesus then, why do your disciples break the what? Break the traditions of the elders. Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? Now, traditions are not inherently bad. You have family traditions, probably. You have, we have traditions as a church, don't we? Well, what do we do? When we gather together every week, we don't just say, hey, what do you guys want to do this week? <laughs> We have traditions. We do the same things. What do we do? We pray. We sing. We give. We have a sermon. We have traditions. And, and we even have more circumstantial traditions. Like, we meet at 9.30. You don't have to wake up Sunday and say, now, I wonder what time we're going to meet today. Well, we, just, we always meet at 9.30. We meet at 10.30. Generally, we meet again at 1 o'clock. We traditionally have a lunch. We even traditionally sing about four hymns in the morning service. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But we all have our traditions, right? We do certain things. There's nothing inherently wrong with just doing the same things or having traditions. The Jews, of course, had religious traditions as well. But Jesus is going to have a lot to say about some of them. But if you notice in verse 2, the origin of these traditions and the origin of many of the Jewish traditions were that they came and were handed down from, he says, the elders. These are the traditions of our elders. In other words, these, this Jewish delegation was saying that the Jewish leadership of the past have sort of handed down these traditions to us most especially the great rabbis of the past and the present, um, the teachers of the law. 
the scribes were part of the Jewish authority that gave traditions. Uh, these were people who initially were people who copied the scriptures, right, to make new scrolls. So everybody, every congregation uh, could have a, a sort of a Bible. Can you imagine that back in the days when if you wanted a Bible, somebody had to copy it out by hand? That'd be a tough thing. These people did that, and and uh, and then they began as they as they continued to write the scripture and study the scripture. They sometimes wrote comments on the scriptures. In fact, sometimes whole commentaries on those religious texts. Um, and of course, they wrote commentaries on the law, the law of Moses, and. So it, it was not only what you should believe, but how you should live and how you should act within the community of Israel. And uh, they began to um, add to the, the law, the, their interpretations of the law, applications of the law um, in different regards. Maybe they thought the scripture wasn't um, detailed enough and they began to write more and more in this sort of just body of tradition began to be passed down through the generations, um, and especially during the time of Christ and up until after the time of Christ, until it was finally sort of codified. Um, this is what Jesus is dealing with, the traditions of the leaders, the elders, the, the scribes, and the uh, rabbis of old. Now, so they ask their question, why are you breaking the traditions of the elders? And after their question, then they give a specific illustration. Here's one specific way that they were concerned that Jesus was breaking scribal tradition, right? Verse 2, the end of the verse, they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, you know that's a good thing to do, right? Mama always told you, wash your hands, scrub them real good before you eat. This doesn't have anything to do, though, with um, hygiene. Uh, this is a different kind of washing that refers not primarily to being physically clean, but symbolically clean, ritually clean. Um, clean in the sense that you are in a state where you can have communion with God. That's what it means to be clean in Old Testament terms. To be unclean is to be in an unfit state to enter to, into the temple or to be um, in the midst of the people of God, there was um, a sense of distance and isolation if you were unclean ritually. Um, you could become unclean, how? By coming into contact, in, 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 I think in a summary way you could say this, you, you became unclean by coming into contact with decay or death probably the best way to say it. So if you had, um, if you came into contact with blood, or if you had some kind of rash on your skin, or maybe you were born with some sort of physical deformity, or perhaps you came in contact with a dead animal, um, you were ceremonially, ritually unclean and considered in a state not able to enter into the presence of God for a certain period of time. And there were different levels of uncleanness, and sometimes you were unclean for the day, or sometimes you were unclean for a week, or whatever. And this was a picture, I think, of the fact 
that in the presence of God and in the presence of God's people in, in their glory in heaven, there is no decay. There's no death. There's no effects of the curse at all. Not only is sin taken away, but all of the effects of sin in the world are taken away. That's the picture here. So if you're touched by decay or death in the Old Testament, you can't be a part of that picture of the glorious wholeness of heaven and where God is. That's that's what's going on. So in the Old Testament, there are two different kinds of cleansing in Old Testament ritual symbolism. There is, on the one hand, the cleansing of the guilt of sinfulness, the guilt of my sin before God that should bring God's righteous judgment on me, right? And that kind of cleansing was made possible symbolically through the offering of an animal sacrifice, um, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the day of atonement, right? And of course, the writer of Hebrews says none of these things really took away sin. All of them pointed us to the coming of Christ whose blood would take away sins. But in symbolic form, in the Old Testament, they offer these sacrifices as a way to be rid of the guilt of sin. But there's another kind of cleansing that takes place in the Old Testament, and that is the cleansing from even the effects of sin. And that's going to come to every one of us. I mean, just like Christ has saved us right now from the guilt of our sin and made us right with God, one day He's going to bring us into a state, into a place with God where there is no more effects of sin ever for all of the rest of eternity. But that was pictured in the Old Testament by these ritual washings, including the washings of the hands, the washings of the body, by a certain period of isolation from the people of God and by the offering of certain offerings, there was you could be ritually cleansed from the effects of sin and the curse in the world. Now, what's key here, what is really interesting and what's super important to know is that there is no Old Testament command for all Israelites to purify their hands before they eat every meal. There's no Old Testament command about that. So there were commands about um, people, especially priests, who should wash their hands and their feet before they went and did the service in the temple and before they ate of the sacrifices that were brought into the tabernacle in the temple, um, or they were to cleanse themselves if they came into contact with certain ceremonial uncleanness. But what happened was that over time, there grew up a sort of rabbinical tradition, in fact, a religious mandate, 
that all Israelites should wash their hands before they partook of a meal. Um, even today, really careful, um, really careful Jews will do this. Netelat um, yadayim, this raising of the hands in cleansed blessing of God before they partake. Um, so I think the way it's usually done, different groups of Jews do it differently today, but um, is that a cup will be filled with water and be poured over the hand, usually twice or three times, and then transferred to the other hand. They, they actually usually use a cup with two handles so that once your hand is cleansed ceremonially, it doesn't get um, unclean again by touching this unclean vessel. And so now the water is poured over the other hand, and then the hands are lifted up, and a prayer is recited, a blessing, and then the hands are dried and you can break bread. This is, um, this is already coming to become a, a mandate that's being placed upon all of the people of God by the Jewish elders and leaders during the time of Jesus. And this is what he's dealing with. Nobody really knows, as far as I can tell, the exact origin of this mandate, why it was put into place. Um, there have been some guesses, but nobody really knows. I don't know if you all have ever seen the movie or the play Fiddler on the Roof. Have you seen that one? Okay, I think everybody ought to watch Fiddler on the Roof at some point uh, because you see a lot of this, I don't know, it just illustrates a lot of what you see in Jewish tradition. And of course, the lead character in that play, Tevia, he's called, he sings about tradition. Our traditions are what keep us. Uh, and, and, and he, at one point, he says, uh, we always have our traditions. He says, why? Do we have our traditions? No one really knows. <laughs> and that's kind of this way. Um, these tradition, this tradition in particular, um, is hard to find the exact moment that it becomes a mandate or why it became a mandate, but somehow through the years it, it just became something that if you are truly pleasing to God, you must do. And so they come to Jesus and say, what, how can you be from God and you're not doing what pleases God? These rabbinical traditions had become religious absolutes on par with the Scripture itself. In fact, later on, when these traditions are more codified in the Talmud, the Jewish law would go even further and say, quote, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. So that the rabbis said, whoever eats bread without washing hands is as if he lay with a whore. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's pretty strong. In fact, they said, he that blesseth food with unwashed hands is guilty of death. So you can see that somehow... Through the years, this had become, this tradition had become a really big deal. Cleanliness, 
um, ceremonial cleanliness, in fact, in general, had become a huge issue. It had become a distinctive mark of religiousness. And the more careful you were with it, the more religious you were and the more apt you were to be acceptable to God in the day of judgment. Well, Jesus answers them uh, in, in the next verses, starting in verse 3. And I think His answer really hits them on two levels. Okay, On the one hand, He does answer their specific issue about the washing of the hands and His supposed profaneness by eating bread or letting His disciples eat bread without ritually washing. But on another level, even more fundamentally, he deals with the whole concept of true purity and acceptability before God. And we're actually come to that even more next week. But what I want to do right now is look at Jesus' answer in verses 3 to 9. First of all, notice in his regards to his answer that he doesn't really directly answer their It's not until you get down to verse 20 when he's talking to his disciples later on that he really says, you know, washing of the hands or lack of washing the hands doesn't make you unclean. But to them, he just just sort of ignores their question because he's going to deal with something more significant. What he does do is he he answers a question with a a question. Don't you love it when people do that? (laughs) Well, sometimes it's very appropriate to answer a question with a question. And in this case, Jesus does. And remember their question. Their question was, why do you break tradition? Right? Now look at his question, verse 3. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So what he's clearly doing here is elevating by way of stark contrast. He's contrasting two things. On the one hand, he calls the one a commandment. And on the other hand, he calls the other a tradition. One is a command. The other is a habit of practice. He also distinguishes them by... The issue of authority. I mean, where did this command come from? It came from whom? From whom? From God. All right, we're all together. From God. But he says, on the other hand, these are your traditions. These are of human origin. He's clearly elevating God's word above human tradition. And this is a vital religious principle for us, friends. This reflects a very high view of Scripture. Jesus is not talking about Scripture as if it's just a collection of religious traditions. Traditional doctrine and understanding, traditional um, admonitions to behavior. He's treating Scripture as if it's something different from mere tradition and something greater than mere tradition. Am I right? Uh, is that what you see in the text? Okay. There is 
there is a distinction being made and a clear elevation of the one over the other. And I tell you this today, um, it is important for us to remember always that the Bible, and I know I'm speaking to many people who are right on board with this, but the Bible is not merely another religious book. That the Bible, Jesus sees the Bible distinct from human religious tradition. He sees it as the very Word of God. He sees the Scriptures, the, 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 the Law of Moses, and the writings of the prophets, the canon of the Old Testament. He sees that as absolutely on another plane from merely human religious ideas. The Bible is the inspired Word of God, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that the Bible is breathed out by God Himself through Moses, through the prophets of the Scriptures, of the Old Testament. God literally breathed out the Bible so that as they wrote, it was nothing less than the very Word of God. This is absolutely essential for us to lay hold of, friends. And I know, again, I'm talking to many people who say, Amen, I believe it, praise God. That's exactly right. But don't let yourself forget it. Don't let your children forget it. We're, we're only a generation away, potentially, of people who have no more foundation on which to stand because they've lost sight of the elevated position which Christ Himself had for the Scriptures. The inspiration and the importance, the infallibility of the Word of God. He is elevating Scripture. He's making a distinction between Scripture and tradition and elevating Scripture above human tradition, even the tradition of the Jewish rabbinical leadership. He's also um, giving a specific countercharge to these people. And you can see this in verse 4. Take a look again at the text. Everybody ready? Verse 4. Don't lose me. Okay. This is going to mean something. Verse 4, he says that these people are actually using their traditions to bypass God's commandments to break His law in essence. He says, For God commanded, verse 4, honor your father and mother. Of course, that's in the, that's in the Scripture, right? Now, which commandment is that? Anybody know? Want to say it out loud? Five. I heard five. That's the right answer. Bing, bing. You win the prize. It's the fifth commandment. This is a quotation from Exodus chapter 20, verse Number 12. Now, he also says, God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Now, that's an application of the fifth commandment. And it is also a quotation from the Scripture itself, from Exodus chapter 21, just the next chapter over, verse number 17. And along that line, just by the way, notice the tight link here between the moral law and the civil punishments for violating that law. All of this, Jesus said, is what God commanded. But now He says, but you say, still in verse 4, right? But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. 
Now, here we get into a sort of complicated set of Jewish traditions involving what's called korban. Right? I think Mark, I believe, uses that term um, when he taught when he tells the same story, or maybe it's maybe it's one of the other gospels. But um, it, some someone says what you would have gained from me is korban. It has the idea of something that has been dedicated to God. And there's extensive rabbinical discussion about this, especially um, later on in the Jewish tradition. And, and it, in other words, I'll, I'll give you the sort of summary. It was possible for the Jews to sort of take their money, some money that they had or their property or, or something else, um, and to dedicate that to God. And in essence, that meant it became part of the temple treasury. But, of course, you didn't always take, you couldn't, you couldn't physically take everything and put it in the temple. And it was just like they sort of retained um, ownership even while you uh, kept it or occupied it or whatever. Um, it was out of the reach. If, 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 here's the key. If, if you dedicated it to God, if you used Korban law or tradition to dedicate something to God, then it was out of reach for anybody else who might try to have a claim on it. So you can't, you can't get it. It's out of, it's out of your, it's even out of our jurisdiction. It's in, it's dedicated to God. Um, and yet there were loopholes in these laws that allowed people to still, even though it was dedicated to God, to still make use of their possessions in some ways, or even later on to release their possessions from being dedicated to God through a rabbinical pronouncement. If a rabbi said, okay, through these unusual circumstances, your possessions are released back to you. So if you had a rabbi friend, or hey, if you were a rabbi and you had a rabbi buddy, I mean, you could make use of this law to your advantage, such as to keep from having to support your parents in their elderly years to the extent that you would have had to based on God's law, honor your father and mother. And so, you know, how to say it today? I mean, it's almost like these people were using the Korban law as a kind of a offshore tax haven, if you will, or a shell company to sort of hide their assets from doing what they ought to do with regard to their parents or to someone else to whom they had real biblical obligations? Jesus' conclusion then is this. Verse 6, the end of the verse. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. They were violating the very intention of the fifth commandment by using their man-made traditions. So they maintained an appearance of religious correctness. We're doing everything by the law or by the traditions of the Jews. We're not breaking the law, but they're really violating the very intent of God behind His words to them. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus had dealt with back in chapter 5. Remember that? When He said... You have heard it said, you shall not murder. And 
you shall love your neighbor. And of course, the question is, well, who's my neighbor? Let's define our terms and narrow the scope and who I have to love. Jesus said, no, if you hate somebody, you have already committed, you've already violated God's intent in that commandment, right? If you lust for someone in your heart, you have already violated the commandment to preserve marriage, the seventh commandment. If you, if you divorce your spouse, except for fornication, he says, you have already violated the, these commands. So he's getting at the same thing here. They're violating God's commands, but under the guise of being still being very religious. They're still doing everything the way that religion says that they're supposed to do, but yet they are not pleasing to God. And so finally, Jesus condemns them as just a continuation of the same evil-heartedness that characterized the Jews back in Isaiah's day. And so he quotes from Isaiah 29 in the last couple of verses there, which we read earlier. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And Jesus is essentially condemning them in two ways. One, that their religion was vain and worthless because they were hypocritical and were only giving lip service to God and had no love for Him in their hearts. And two, they had allowed man-made traditions to supersede the very inspired Word of God in the Scriptures. And in those two things lie the lessons for us. For you, right now, right here, Okay, you with me? Right, right now, sitting here, you and I, to take away these two things, meditate on them, and let them have their proper significance for us. On the one hand, we must all recognize the danger of falling to a place where we are merely going through the motions without a heart for God. It's possible to come and sit here week after week and look good on the outside. We're going through all of the traditions, right? You're showing up at 10.30 just like we always traditionally do. You're singing your four hymns just like we all do. You're sitting there through the prayer. But it's possible to come and be a person like that whose heart is not warm toward God, is not characterized by faith, by humility and repentance. Someone who's not in earnest about God at all. Listen to me. Am I talking to somebody here who's on the cusp of falling into a coldness of heart toward the things of God? Where for you, religion could possibly become just a mere empty shell. Just going through the outward motions, putting a little money in the offering, saying the prayer, singing the hymn. Our hearts are far from God. Like the church in Sardis, having a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Remember what God told the people in the Old Testament? 
who kept offering their animal sacrifices to him, even though they didn't love him, didn't really trust him, weren't repentant about their sin. He said, stop giving me your animals. I don't need your animals. I don't need you to come and worship me. I don't need you to come and sit in church. It doesn't give me something that I don't have in myself. What I want is your heart. You need me. Turn your heart to me. I am God. You need to worship me and to draw near to me and find in me everything that you need for life. That's what we need. How those Old Testament people, if you, some of you are reading through, but we, we're finishing up the Old Testament, right, in our reading plan. How often, often, often does the Lord condemn religious people because they don't really care. It's all a big show. Oh, may it never be that it would be a show for, for us. Amen. God, deliver me from that. That I could get up here and do the big pastor show. Or that you could sit there and put on the good Christian show and have a heart that's cold and dead and slowly being desensitized to sin to where you don't care about sin anymore, you don't love Jesus anymore, you don't read much of the Bible anymore, you don't get down on your knees and in earnest pour out your heart to God anymore. It's all a show. Oh, how easily we begin to drift toward that in the subtle temptations of the, of the tempter. To, to, to make much of everything else in this life and to leave off the one thing that really matters. Draw near to God. Your life is about communion with Him. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to come into a relationship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ and, and fellowship with Him to see Him more clearly for who He is as you read and hear His Word and to fall on your knees and worship Him. Truly, I mean, from your heart. That's what you were made for. You'll never be satisfied with anything less than that. Even being as religious as you can possibly be will not make up for communion with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. These people were worshiping Him with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. God forbid that we should be like those people who were like, Cups washed on the outside, but inside they were full of filth. Whose, whose lives were like whitewashed tombs, but inside it's all dead. It's just a bunch of bones. I pray to God that He would close the doors and shut down this church before we ever as a whole became a kind of a congregation that was really pretty much dead in terms of real spiritual vitality. And if that's not going to happen, if that, in order for that not to be the case, it's going to take every single one of you drawing near to God in earnest, in true faith and repentance and belief and hope, really hearing His Word so that you might come to know Him, really believing what you hear, truly believing it. There's a second thing I think we should take away from this, and that is a need for all of us to constantly reevaluate our traditions and our assumptions 
on the basis of the Word of God. Constantly reevaluate what you do, what you don't do, what you believe, the way you think, to constantly, intentionally reevaluate all of your traditions and assumptions on the basis of the Word of God. You know, our, our vision statement for this church reads this way that we believe God is making us into a body of believers who is thoughtful and careful with the Bible, continually willing to be changed by it and constrained by our commitment to be faithful to it. I hope those aren't just empty words that we wrote down on a piece of paper ten, five years ago and, and not a part of who we are and who we want to be more. Continually willing to be changed by the Bible, constrained by our commitment to be faithful to the Bible. What does the Word of God tell us? Test everything, doesn't it? Test it. See whether it's true. The people in Berea were, were blessed because they examined the Scriptures to see whether these things were in fact so. We all, all of us, have traditional understandings about God, man, the way that the world ought to work, the way we should live. Everybody does, right? It's the way you were born. I mean, the way you grew up has an effect on it. The, the, the teaching that you've heard in the past has an effect on it. Your own innate thinking has an effect on it, sometimes way more than what it ought to have. Our own inclinations, all of these things affect our our assumptions and our pre-understandings before we ever come to the Bible. What we're saying is, Jesus is elevating the Bible to such a degree that it must always challenge our assumptions. And we must always allow our assumptions to become conformed to the Word of God and not the Word of God, not the other way around, not the Word of God being conformed to our assumptions. You know know what that means? Here's the way I think, here's what I think it means. It means... That every one of us is going to have to give earnest and careful attention, passage by passage by passage, to more and more of the Word of God. And as you read the Word, here's what happens. Every one of us reads the, the Scripture from a particular set of assumptions that we already have, good and bad. But as we read the Word of God, as we really dig into a passage of the Scripture and we understand it more clearly than we ever did before, we ought to let that chip away at the rough edges of our assumptions, our previous understanding about God and His ways and and religion in general. And it continues to do that. And of course, that then has an effect on our overall thinking and, 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 and so our assumptions affect that we read the way we read the Scriptures, but then the way that we read the Scriptures begins to change slowly, change our assumptions, so that it goes in sort of a circle that becomes a spiral of growth in our lives. As we test everything, examine what we've always thought, we've always believed, what we've always done, more and more under the light of our growing knowledge of the Word of God. That's why it's so important that we all give not only attention to the broad scope of the Scripture, but really dig in to as much of the Word of God as we can systematically, 
We walk away with a... What we want to do is grow. And here's what can happen. If, if you never do that in your life, your assumptions can be shaped by other people around you, by the world around you, and, and your assumptions can gradually so drift away from the Scripture as to be another religion altogether. And that's exactly what Jesus was facing in, with the Jews. The Jews of His day were not true Jews. They were, as it were, another religion altogether. He says, your religion is vain. It's empty. It's worthless. These were people who should have had a deep communion with God. And some of them did, amen? But, um, but so many of them were more attached to their traditions than they were willing to examine everything in light of the Word of God. This is the great doctrine of the Protestant Reformation, the great formal cause of the Reformation, the formal principle, the principle of what we call sola, what? Scriptura, the Scripture alone, which is not to mean that traditions have no influence on our lives or are altogether unimportant, but rather means that when it comes to a final arbiter of truth, Scripture must win out every time. Every time. Reformation, in large part, was an issue, uh, was a reformation about the issue of authority. Who is the authority? Jesus' answer to the Jews seems to me to be abundantly clear. It is not the inherited wisdom of the religious sages if that is over against the very Word of God. Our thinking needs to be tested again and again by the Word. That is the foundational attitude of reformation, both personal and church and societal reformation. In fact, our consciences should only be bound by the Word of God. I'll leave you with a couple quotes. The second London Confession of Faith, the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, says this, God alone is the Lord of our conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to His Word, or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines, or to obey such commands out of conscience, is to betray true liberty. And the requiring of an implicit faith an absolute and blind obedience that is to man-made tradition like Catholicism does, is, it says, to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. And the verse that they cite, or one of the verses that they cite is, guess what? Matthew chapter 15, verse number 9. So I say, this is an important verse. It's an important principle for us to grasp. It's a principle that animated Luther, Martin Luther at the gathering in Worms when he was called by the Roman church to recant his writings. And in the end he said, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive 
to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. And that's what we want. Consciences that are captive. Not to what we always thought. Or to the way that we were raised. Or to what a lot of religious people around us think. Or even the pronouncements of some Christian denomination or the other, but captive to the Word of God. And there are going to be misunderstandings, and it's going to be a matter of growth. Our growth and sanctification is always a messy thing, but it's a certain thing if it's guided by the Word of God. And that's what we want. So, Father, help us, please. Lord, you know how powerful presuppositions can be, our own assumptions about things. Please grant us the grace to examine everything in the light of your word. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. As the pianist plays, I want to give you a moment to ask the Lord to examine your heart whether or not you are possibly in danger of sliding away from a real heart for God and just going through the motions. If so, all I can say is this. I'm hoping and I'm praying that you get to the point where you're desperate. There's a certain grace of desperation that says, God, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to draw near to you. That's what I need. Please draw me near. I invite you, encourage you, just ask Him like that. And I'll just tell you this, I've found that He answers again and again. Call out to Him.